Hey family, what's going on? What's going down? What's shaking? Welcome to Jonathan Souls Podcast. Every Wednesday and Sunday, I get into some very groovy interviews. Uh, mostly on Sundays, I try to focus on uh, the, the, the African uh, diaspora uh, creative uh, part of our culture. I focus on comic book creators and fiction writers. Uh, on Wednesday, I may do some uh, Wednesday rewinds, meaning uh, bring you back some oldie but good interviews. And sometimes I go far field of the creative. Uh, so uh, let's get into this interview. You really going to dig it. Uh, follow me on Twitter, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-E-U-L on Twitter. Love you guys. Check out this interview. I got the honor and privilege of talking to not only a tremendous artist, but an educator in the person of John Jennings. How you doing, brother? How are you doing? Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Appreciate it. Real good, man. Real good. Now, when I interviewed uh, Amari, Amani uh, Latif over at uh, Peep Game Comics, mm-hmm. and we talked about Blue Hand, I said that John Jennings is the Sith that we're looking for. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know the Sith? Because when I looked at Kid Code and when I looked at... When I looked at a uh, blue hand mojo, I was like, oh, man. I mean, not only was it, I mean, first, I'm like, okay. I mean, the art is crazy, but it has a rhythm to it. Okay. Right. Not only did it have a rhythm to it, and particularly in Kid Code, it had a humor to it. I mean, obviously, if anybody's seen the album covers from the old Funkadelic, it was a lot of little stuff going on in the margins. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you follow me? Oh, yeah, that's. That was a huge influence. I mean, you know, for that particular book, the three of us is like me, Stacy Robinson, who is uh, the other half of Black Kirby. And then, now you see, you see, I told you, Sith is always two. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. Trade it up. Yeah, right, yeah, right, you right. Always have like one as a yeah. That's right. Um, right. Yeah, and then Damian Duffy, uh-huh. who actually is the writer. I mean, okay. he, he actually put you know. We, so we created the story, and then Damian came in and did the you know the dialogue. And wow. And it was just a great combination. And, you know, we're working on this, the, uh, the rest of the story, too. Um, all of us had, like, multiple projects. Uh, actually, Damien just finished up his Ph.D. for us. And so, you know, we had to. Wow. That was, was a lot of juggling of things. All of us are, all of us are scholars and artists. So, mm-hmm. you know, it gets kind of crazy sometimes. That's that's beautiful, man. There was a brother that I, um, a professor I went to school with named uh, LaVon Shepard. I don't know if he's still with us. But he mm. was like, he was one of those guys, a scholar and an artist. And he was also like a refuge for the students. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It was all white school, all the black kids and the cool white kids that couldn't fit in came to him. I mean, yep. do you, do, do you find kids are coming to you when you're at school? Is it, is it more than just a teaching thing? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely felt that way, especially when I was at, um, well, actually, I guess all the schools I've taught at. University of California, Riverside will be the four, my fourth teaching position uh, as a professor, right? I started pretty early um, mm-hmm. after graduate school. And um, I've always found that, as you're saying, like the the geeky kids, the kids who don't fit in, the kids who are, you know, um, who feel like they are, extra, you know, like, like ostracized in some way, sure. whether it be because of race, uh, you know, gender, what have you. Right. They seem to always gravitate to me, you know, right. and uh, you're so you're yeah. you're the Professor X for their mutant. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I got ball headed and all. <laughs> so so what interest? I mean, we could we could go crazy about the books and everything. And by the way, family, I picked it up at peepgamecomics.com. I got Kid Code there. I got Blue Hand Mojo. Is there another place that you can that they can pick up your uh, your book? I know you do more than comics, Are right? You? Yeah, your, yeah, your name right. is in that oh, that whole future Afrofuturism thing. Can you go into that a little bit about the Afrofuturism piece? Yeah, um, well, yeah. here's the thing. So, so Afrofuturism isn't a new thing. That's okay. the first thing people need to understand. It's new to somebody, right? <laughs> All right, right, right. In one in one way or another, but um, well, at least someone someone is just now discovering it, right? But it was it was a it was a it was a term that was uh, that was uh, created in like the early. 90s um, by this gentleman named Mark Derry. He was a white uh, critical, like a critical scholar around media, right? And so he was noticing a pattern of, um, you know, African Americans in particular, people from diaspora, creating science fiction and fantasy narratives um, that were dealing with political aspects of like what it means to be black in America, what it means to be discriminated against, but using science fiction and fantasy as ways to talk about that, right? 
Do so, you, can you recall any of the uh, authors he might have been thinking of at the time he coined that phrase? Oh yeah, yeah. He was talking in the um, in the doc in the uh, excuse me in the uh, essay. He actually interviews um, Sammy Delaney and uh, Trisha Rose. I want to say he talks to Greg Tate as well, who is a pioneer in that study in the study of uh, Afrofuturism and science fiction as well. Wow. A lot of people know him for his like work on music, but he's actually like a I think probably one of the the, the similar pioneers and looking at critical race studies and um, and science fiction as well. Okay. But anyway, so so those are some of the pieces. One thing I thought was really interesting about how he posited uh, science, uh, excuse me, uh, Afrofuturism was that he brings in comics as well as part of the aesthetic, which I thought was always awesome. A lot mm-hmm. of people don't don't um, don't they tend to, to to forget that, but he he talks about milestone media as well because really. Yeah, is he actually wow. mentions Icon and Rocket and also uh, hardware in his okay. essay. You know, it has yeah. images of them. So he actually puts, you know, uh, the four, the, the 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 godfathers of, um, you know, milestone media as pioneers in Afrofuturism as well. And that's something that I've been harping on a lot too because people still they still tend to look at comics as being a low art form. And I, I think that it's been treated that way in our country, but, you know, it's a very sophisticated art form, actually. So Yeah, to me, anyway, it's just, it's just sci-fi. It's just sci-fi with pictures. Right, exactly. It's just science. That's just exactly right. I mean, basically, it's a it's a whole other way of storytelling that people um, kind of gravitate t- towards sometimes visual medium, you know. Mm-hmm. But so 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 fast forward to like the last few years, and there's been a, a huge resurgence in interest in black speculative culture. So not only science fiction, but horror, fantasy, you know, uh, geek culture, all these kinds of things. Because basically, what started happening, it it started to create an alternative way of looking at oneself. You know, you see a rise of stuff like the Afropunk movement and, you know, and how this, these things start to intersect with uh, Black Lives Matter and the anti-prison industrial complex movement. Hmm. All these things, are start, you know, start to, you know, be a resurgence. And, and so, you know, uh, you know, like you said, I'm a scholar as well. So I've been I've been looking at these trends and stuff with a bunch of other friends, um, you know, people who've been looking at uh, just just media culture in general. And mm-hmm. it seems like this is a, a, a resurgence of <clears throat> certain aspects of the black arts movement to us, you know, so came up with this, this, this idea of the black speculative arts movement that <clears throat> kind of looks at uh, the creation of speculative work, you know, with a very, very political lens. Um, and I think in some ways is kind of like a, a, a parallel movement to the black lives matter movement, and other social movements that seem to be happening right now. You know, I mean, look at look at we are t- we were talking about Luke, Luke Cage a little bit earlier. Right. Um, look at what, how how people have been um, associating this character with certain aspects of you know Black Lives Matter or or, or anti police brutality that kind of thing. Uh-huh. And if you look within the movements, you do see a lot of overlap between people who are considered to be activists in that space and and also people who are being who are doing creative work. You know, so. Anyway, so 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 I'm thinking that that is what where we are right now, where we have this uh, this really amazing geek culture that uh-huh. is fueled by a political zeitgeist, so to speak, that seems to be happening. So I think it's you know everything cycles back around. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like if you're people under siege, all your art has to be political. That's the way I look at it too. I mean, you yeah. know, that's how it's always been. I I honestly uh, I'm very much into what Du Bois said about you know about. Uh, what he called Negro art at the time was that, you know, if it's not, if it's not uh, used for propaganda, he really wasn't interested in it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, so let me ask you this. Yeah. Have we progressed much since Uhura? Since Uhura? I mean, as far as a representation, I think, yes. Um, how that has been playing out in, uh, you know, in modern culture, as far as like, uh, the actual culture, maybe not so much. You, you know, know? That's, you know, it's a trick question, right? Well, I mean, I guess everyone can be. So what? what <laughs> you know, what I'm saying. I mean, so the reason the reason why I say it's a trick question is because, to me, when you create art for your own people mm-hmm. and your own people support it, to me, that's much more important than uh, you being represented in other people's media. No, I, I totally agree with that. That's, yeah. that's a slippery slope that you deal with with representation, which is why I was kind of like, okay, well, on one particular piece, 
right. she was a token. She was a tokenized character, right? Mm-hmm. A fine ass token. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. But uh, at the same time, you know, we didn't know anything about Uhuru. You know, what I'm saying right. I, for far we knew her first name was Lieutenant. You know, what I'm saying <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly, right. You know, exactly. In fact, you know, until I saw the first uh, the first remake movie, I was like, oh, wait a minute, Neota, that's her name. What's going on with that? You know, I thought right. the date. I had no idea. You know, uh-huh. um, only thing I knew about her is that she was going to quit because I guess the, you know, the racism on the staff or whatever, not the actors per se, well, but also, the, she wanted to go back. She wants wanted to go back and do more dancing on Broadway and stuff, too. So that was actually uh, part. Of the OK. Yeah. And then Martin Luther King talked to her. Right, right, right. And actually, my friend Stacey Robinson did this wonderful piece um, that actually shows Dr. King pointing into the distance and the behind her behind him. Wow. It's a pretty cool piece. That's so, cool. So yeah. off, off, I'm gonna say off camera, but off mic, we talked about Luke Cage, and I I know that he's a popular uh, character, TV show, and Netflix right now. I was telling huh? you coming up when I saw the Luke Cage character, I was like, this looked like a slave. The guy right. got chained around his waist. He got looked like manacles or braces on his hands. And mm-hmm. what, what I didn't understand it at the time as a kid, but. The metal band around his 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 forehead, like around his like a like around his mind. Mm-hmm. To me, man, that was that was that was heavy. You you mentioned that you you talked about that in one of your books. Well, it was it was a piece by Blair Davis who did a piece um, in our. Um, I have a collection of essays. Okay, uh, that actually just won the Eisner Award this past summer. Wow! Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. Uh, me and my friend uh, and colleague, uh, Dr. Francis uh, Gatewood, we uh, co-edited a piece for Rutgers University called uh, The Black of the Ink. Mm-hmm. And it was basically a collection of scholarly essays around um, race and, and culture and comics, you know, in particular. And so Blair Davis wrote this really wonderful essay about the semiotics, uh, which is the study of signs and symbols, like a mm-hmm. sort of linguistic study of signs and symbols, mm-hmm. and kind of looked at... Um, the, the 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 costumes from the seventies, right? Okay, and did, did some interesting close readings. But yeah, you could definitely s- see some of that, uh, some negative aspects, uh, re- you know, reflected in the character. Despite despite the fact that they were, you know, they were trying to reach out to a black audience and actually honestly make money off of a black audience. Of course, you know, of course. I mean, that's... they had just found. Uh, they had just discovered, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing, you mm-hmm. know, because, yeah. of course, Luke Cage was a response to uh, the black exploitation era. You know, like a lot of a lot of the characters that were at that time, you know, mm-hmm. um, Hollywood has, was doing really well with, with uh, black exploitation at the time and uh, kind of saved Hollywood until yep. they switched over to horror movies, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, the saving grace, you know. Um, and so comics have always done that kind of thing, too, where they were actually pick up on trends and and that kind of thing. You know, do you and, think and, do you think that the new Luke Cage film is is in the same vibration is it picking up on a trend? The the new yeah. uh TV series. Well, here's the thing. I I think that um you know, if you you're always looking to 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 please a particular audience, you know. Mm-hmm. So um you you're always looking for demographics and stuff. I think it's uh it's really interesting that um these particular characters were selected, you know. Uh, but in the comic books, I mean, he is—he was part of Defenders. I mean, it makes sense. He's connected to Jessica Jones, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, the way that the that the series was produced, you know, it fit, it felt very authentic in certain in certain ways, you know, because it had a black producer writer. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and you so, got you know, a woman. You got a woman at the head of this. Trying to make money off of. Yeah. It's a capital. You know, we we live in a capitalist society, so yeah. I mean, definitely, they're trying to appease a particular audience mm-hmm. that has traditionally been underserved, right? So um, that is definitely like part of it. Always is to make money. <laughs> so I yeah. and and it seems like Cage broke the internet for a second. So <laughs> I guess I guess we're gonna see some more of that brother. You know, <laughs> of course, of course, of course. So uh, let's 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 continue on the cold metaphor thing. Mm-hmm. Was. Was Professor X, Martin Luther King, and and uh, Magneto, Malcolm X, in your scholarly opinion? No, no. I what? Think that, that, Are that you was, serious? What? No, that was a retcon, man. No, so so here's the thing. Um, and actually, and I would have to get this information from my boy uh, Mosby, uh, okay. Chris Mosby, about this. But there were actually two Jewish. Um, uh, rabbi, they were actually more closely aligned to Magneto and Xavier, actually. <laughs> but wow. see, when you, if you look at the history of those characters, mm-hmm. uh, 
Magneto was just a megalomaniac. You know what I'm saying? They they started adding the whole like, you know, <clears throat> Jewish aspect and these uh these different relationships later on, and then people just started, you know, just started writing that into history. It was a it was a retroactive continuity thing. They so he wasn't so, always like a survivor of the Holocaust, right? Right. He was. He was a. He was just an evil mutant at first. You know, okay. what I'm saying he just he was just like any other villain where he was just like, oh, I'm powerful and I should rule everything. You know, what I'm mm-hmm. saying so. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of like how he started. But then once you get to like the mid eighty, what well, get to like the early eighties and. <laughs> Or maybe even earlier than that. Then, then you start to see him as oh, his name is Eric Lenscher, and he he was Jewish, and mm-hmm. you know he was he survived a concentration camp, and you know then then you start to see these parallels pop up, you know, uh, later on. But I, I think it's an interesting conversation. But um, you know, maybe- I mean, because since the mutants were were always ridiculed and they had a hard time in society, and right. these guys came out in the sixties, didn't they? That's true. That's true. And you would like to think that. So we just projected. We just projected what we want to on these guys is what you're saying. What'd you say? You're saying that we just projected our struggle on. Well, no, no, (laughs) everybody's I think what's happened is that, you know, later on they were like, oh, yeah, we were thinking about that. But in real, there's been there's been uh, interviews with Stan Lee that said that, you know, he was so busy with other projects that he didn't even know what the hell he was doing to x-men at the time that's why i wasn't successful at first i mean they're about to cancel the x-men that's know? true that's true yeah so it was new, it would, if it wasn't for like uh you know uh what's his name neil adams's work on the x-men later on um they wouldn't have it wouldn't have survived honestly they were about to cancel that book and uh, mm-hmm. which have been a huge mistake actually right. um but yeah so you know what happens though is that you know stuff gets mythologized and it sounds good and it's like oh okay well that's and it's an interesting argument to make, you know, but in really reality, though, you know, you know, Magneto was a crazy murdering person. You know, right. what I'm saying? Malcolm X was uh, was a, a wonderful human being who, um, you know, was about liberation politics, you know. And so, you know, it really does him a disservice, I think, to compare him to this uh, megalomaniac, megalomaniacal character. I mean, he changes later on, you know, yeah. what I'm saying? because what they try to do is they try to fit that re- retro that retroactive continuity that they do later. Mm-hmm. But in reality, I mean, you know, it was a stretch. You know, the mutant idea is basically for anybody that's an outsider. You know, okay, okay. Which is why X Men becomes such a huge, uh, such a huge uh, success. You know, mm-hmm. is that any like if you're gay, if you're uh, if if you feel if you're Muslim and you're being and you're being uh, persecuted if you're like a, just a nerd um you know if you're obese or whatever you know considered mm-hmm. to be uh an outsider in any way you know then you could be a mutant you know what i'm saying so it any everybody fits anybody can be be squeezed into that metaphor that's what's so beautiful about it you know and that's one of the powers of comics too because they they speak in uh symbols you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting. That's interesting. So I wanted to um, to kind of circle back on the whole Afrofuturism thing. Mm-hmm. In, in the interviews I've been doing recently, I've been saying it looks like we're experiencing like a black creator renaissance. Yes. And, 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 it's, and it's not <laughs> just the fact that it's a lot of people creating, but it's a lot of people getting support. Mm-hmm. You follow me? In the 90s, you know, I remember Brother Man popping up. And uh, they they received a lot of acclaim, but I don't remember a lot of people who would be their peers. And I wasn't really aware of what was going on in the arts. And you said speculative, speculative fiction, speculative arts. What is uh, that I, exactly? Speculative. Well, here's the thing: um, <clears throat> if you look at um, the type of literature we're talking about, I mean, you have genres like fantasy and horror okay. and um, science fiction. Those have have their own particular media tropes that that connect them to say a particular genre, mm-hmm. but in, in totality, we are talking about speculation, you know what I'm okay, saying? So magical, magical realism, horror, science fiction, things that haven't happened that are connected to the real world, but are you're speculating, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what speculative fiction is. Gotcha. You know? so, now, so it's now. a good way to think about the entire uh, idea of various speculations. Now, whether you want, whether you're more attracted to like a darker space well, like a you know futuristic space. That's you know those are like genre specifications. Yeah, you, yeah. you yeah. mentioned uh, Mark Derry earlier. How we kind of coined the term mm-hmm. Afro uh, futurist. Mm-hmm. What is what is your definition? Does it differ from his? You know, yeah. Because here's the thing. I mean, one of the things about Derry's definition is that <clears throat> and I talk about this when I lecture sometimes about it. Is that it's interesting to me that he was talking about. Um, you know, the future, but he speaks about 
this particular um, this particular uh, movement being part of the 20th century. So mm-hmm. he already puts a time limitation on it, you know, okay. which I think is interesting, you know, because we are in the 21st century, right? right? And so this is jumping off during the heyday of the internet. This is when like the internet is, is, is popping off. Mm-hmm. People are thinking about cyber culture. And so, you know, he starts to think about, oh man, you know, this is the works of Octavia Butler and all these other people like Sam Delaney, Nalo Hopkinson, um, Stephen Barnes, you know, mm-hmm. They're looking at science fiction as a way to talk about these particular issues and are using metaphors through a racialized lens that hasn't really been done before, okay. or at least not to his knowledge at the time. But if you if you go if you start looking back at uh, the Harlem Renaissance, though, you know, um, you start to see a tradition of speculative fiction that is over 100 years old. And so one of the, one of the people who um, was the pioneer of that was Sherry Renee Thomas with her with her classic book. Um, Dark Matter, you know, which was a collection of speculative fiction from like the last 100 years. And so she basically posits that not only have we been doing this type of work for a long time, but it has been we have a a rich history of it. You know, so people like Du Bois and County Cullen and uh, Zora Neale Hurston and, um, you know, people like, you know, uh, um, um, Henry Dumas and even Miri Baraka and uh, people of, of that caliber were writing speculative pieces of, that, that could be considered, you know, science fiction. You look at George Shiloh's work, uh, Black No More, where he created, the, the there's a character that creates a chair that changes a, a, a black person into a white person. Wow. That's science fiction, man. That is science fiction. I didn't think uh, the eyes of watching God was science fiction, but if you can sit in a chair and change up, I mean, that's definitely uh, sci-fi right there. Well, yeah, I would definitely say that, that, that Toni Morrison writes, but has written speculative fiction. I mean, Beloved is a ghost story, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's about a ghost. That's 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 horror. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. So, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, that idea of, uh, you know, um, race as a, as a specter is something that's, that's, that's something that's prevalent in a lot of the ways we think about, you know, it being a haunted existence. Right. In fact, I came with this term, the ethnogothic, that talks about gothicism or like gothic spaces that relate to like trauma and race, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, I, I think I think Derry was onto something with the construction of the idea of Afrofuturism. Mm-hmm. I think that um, I do think that perhaps he, he he situated it too much in the physicality of the black body mm-hmm. and not necessarily in some of the practices of how we think about blackness as an extension of uh of, of a type of technology like black. So, so for somebody who's not a scholar like myself is, was Derry's definition. We sit on the back of the transporter. I mean, is that, was that his, no, 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 no. he was basically using the metaphor of, of, of us being from, you know, of us being like transplanted aliens, that kind of thing. Like slavery is, if you think about it, I mean, you know, it's, like brother from another planet. Yeah, actually brother from another planet, I would think would be a seminal example of like how, uh, Afrofuturism works by using these narratives around slavery. All right, now what's your definition? You know, actually, you know, I, I would rather I would rather call it like black speculative art, a black black speculative work. You know, um, I think Afrofuturism is a is a jumping off point, but okay. I think that Afrofuturism generally is like you know black speculative culture that situates itself around a particular future or a black future, you know, okay. or the possibilities of a black future, that kind of thing. So, so the, the little romance novels, Fly Girl and stuff like that, that's not Afro-futurism, but maybe wild. That is. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, the, I don't like to use the like term. Zane? Huh? Like Zane and stuff? I don't yeah, 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 yeah. There was, you seen me a novel called Fly Girl back in the day? Oh, okay. Yeah. Was there magic in it? <laughs> no, no. It was, um, you know, it was like, uh, the, the romance novels I used to see the teenagers read on the train all the time. Oh, no, no, no. So you I know, drug that. boy, high school, you know, that kind of thing. No, no. I, I right. was like, I wouldn't say that that was, uh, okay, good. Yeah. I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't think that your definition encompassed everything that wasn't no, no, like no. autobiographical. I mean, you know, a lot of the tropes of science fiction are used like time travel. Like for instance, Kindred, the, the book I told you about um, that we just finished adapting by Octavia Butler mm-hmm. to a graphic novel, um, it's a time travel story, you know? Wow. Okay. So some people think of it as being a science fiction story. I think that it's more of a horror story or like a supernatural fantasy. She, she actually called it a grim fantasy herself because the mechanism for time travel is, um, 
isn't really evident. You know, it's actually kind of more of a magical thing happens, right? So just to just make sure I didn't hear it incorrectly, you're doing a graphic novel of Octavia Butler's Kindred? We, we've done it. Me and my friend uh, Damien Duffy uh, have successfully adapted it, and it's, it's due out in January from Abrams Comic Arts. Incredible, incredible. Wow. And what was that like? It was really, really rough, man. I mean, it's a it's a hard book. I mean, are you familiar with the with the uh, the, the contents? Oh, I mean, the story itself. Absolutely not. I just read okay. Wild Seed, man. I, I I'm way behind on my Octavia Butler. Well, check this out. So it's about a woman named. It's set in the '70s. She she wrote it in 1979, um, I think, uh, as, as as I recall. But it was basically it was set in the, the bicentennial. It was like set like '76 is when it was set. Okay. So it's about this black woman named Dana Franklin who is in an interracial marriage with a man named Kevin Franklin. They're both writers, and they're in Southern California. They're moving into a house, a new house, their first new house, to, I mean, their first house together. Mm-hmm. And while they're unpacking books and boxes and stuff, she gets this really weird feeling in her stomach, and then before you know it, she's automatically transported into the middle of a plantation in the, in the mid-1800s. God damn. Right. Okay. I know that's unfortunate, right? So yeah. anyway, so what ends up happening is she she ends up on a uh, a bank, you know, uh, like a riverbank, and mm-hmm. she sees this this young white redheaded kid struggling in the water. He's drowning, right? So she instinctively swims out and saves him. Mm-hmm. Brings and then his his mother comes out and she he, she, she thinks that she that he's being attacked uh, in some way and is freaking out and. She's like, get up off me. I'm trying to save her. She gives him CPR. She saves his life. Mm-hmm. And then she turns around and she sees a shotgun in her face because the, the guy's, the, the kid's father has come out and he's thinking that she's a man because she has a very low haircut, you know? Sure. And, that she, and she's dressed in slacks, you know, because she's mm-hmm. in the 70s. She's on bell bottoms, you know? Right. And, uh, you know, and then once her life is threatened, she instantaneously pops back to the, to the present. So uh, don't you wish we could do that? <laughs> I don't know if I want to I mean, go the, go forward in, in, in time. But okay, go ahead. So she pops yeah, back. So, uh huh. So what is happening is uh, over over the amount of over the period of uh, the story, we start to discover that the young kid's name is Rufus, and that he is her like great 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 grandfather, something like that. You know, <laughs> she's a he's a she's one he's one of her ancestors. Okay. Right? And that slowly but surely she realizes that in order for her to exist, that she must help facilitate the rape of her great, great, great. Whoa! Are you serious? Yeah. Octavia serious. got an edge to her, man. No, yeah, so very, yeah, her stuff is her stuff is not uh it's not light, you know what I'm saying? So she yeah. talks about see so so you can see how like a speculative space can talk easily about race and about discrimination in America. I mean and how race is uh is live so so it was a very difficult book to uh it almost it, it almost has a sense of like certain violence is, is just like an i don't want to say a necessity but I, I guess since you're going back in time i mean if it's almost like it's 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 a necessity i suppose you know it's about survival you know yeah, you know because basically you know maybe the boy was calling her to him and mm-hmm. then she would pop back through time when she would, when her life was, uh, you know, was threatened. So, so, so let me, let me ask you this. And before we, before we go further, I did want to mention that you're going to be a part of some festivals coming up. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Um, so right now, of course, I'm going to be a part of, um, you know, New York comic con, but, uh, I'm actually one of the, um, co-organizers and creators of the black comic book festival, which happens at the Schomburg center. Uh, for research in black culture, which is in Harlem, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the repository of information for the Harlem Renaissance. And for the last four years, we have been um, featuring the work of, you know, black independent comic book publishers. Beautiful. What, what are the dates on that? The black it's comic MLK book? It's MLK weekend. So it's, uh, let's see, January. Let me see here. Do, do, do. Going through my calendar. Sorry. <laughs> yep. So it's you know this it's the Friday and, it's gonna be the Friday and Saturday which I think is the thirteenth and fourteenth. Okay, hold up a second. Uh, yeah, it's the thirteenth and fourteenth okay. of January uh, gotcha. in Harlem 
at the at the Schomburg Center. Okay. So we also do another festival. I, I, I co-founded another one because I'm crazy on the other side <laughs> of the country. Wow. Called the Black Comic Arts Festival, which is um, which was uh, co-founded and, and sponsored with the, um, the, the 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 Martin Luther King Jr. North California uh, kind of celebration uh, institute. You know, so it's, this is a non-for-profit organization mm-hmm. uh, called uh, MLK NorCal that puts on a um, extremely uh, diverse and, uh, um, you know, energetic celebration of civil rights, but also like, you know, Dr. King's legacy. So, yeah, so basically what I do is I um, I jump on a plane in the middle of the one festival and fly out to the other. So, so basically uh, the one in New York is Friday, Saturday. The one in um, California is uh, Sunday, Monday, because, you know, Monday is uh, MLK weekend. So, right, so right, right. OK day. So we have it off. So, yeah, I'm tired by the end of it. But um, I, I bet, man, I bet you, you really um, you really leaving everything on the table. Yeah, um, there was it's a really amazing uh, event, uh, both of them. So last year we had about seven thousand people. Woo! At, wow, at, that's, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was excellent. So, and then, and then also about four thousand at the one in California. So, um, another festival is uh, that I co-founded with uh, with um, Ricardo Padilla and uh, Frederick Aldama is the is called SoulCon, the Black and Brown Comic Expo. So it's a combination of Black and Latino artists. And this currently is at um, Ohio State University. It's going to be not this weekend, but the weekend after. In October in Columbus. That's fantastic. I, That's fantastic. It's, second it's it, the first of its kind. So, you know, it's black and Latino artists, independent artists, mm-hmm. uh, discussions about race and, and, and discrimination and, and, you know, and political power of images, that kind of thing. So it's, it's yeah. funny you mentioned that because um, a colleague of mine, he uh, ran a, like a Hispanic uh, conference or whatever. He asked me, hey, what'd you do this weekend? You know, that kind of conversation. Did you, did you mm-hmm. see Luke Cage? So he saw all, he binged on all 13 episodes, I think he said. And I yeah. said, well, what'd you think about it? You know, I don't, I don't watch television. Much. What do you think about it? And he was like, well, I just wish there was Latino superhero like that. And so when you, you mentioned this black brown festival, I was like, wow, you know, yeah, no, there, there, you know, Marvel has very few, but there's of course the white tiger is, uh, uh, is a Latino character. And, um, a few others, you know, D- you know, DC, of course, you know, even though he's problematic at first was vibe, you know, so there, there's a handful in the main. I mean, if we really want to be honest, I mean, yeah. Bane, wasn't he like Mexican or something? The I guy that so. broke Batman's back? Yeah. Yeah. Not a, you know, not, not a superhero, but yeah. You know, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. So, so let me ask you this. You, you mentioned yeah. that you were adapting uh, Octavia Butler's uh, Kindred. Mm-hmm. Uh, to a graphic novel. I read Wild Seed and I ain't gonna lie to you, man. I, I dug the, the characters, but that was a hard, it was some, it was some hard stuff to it's get through, book, man. man. She deals with a lot of really, she doesn't really pull back. No, um, not at all. To these particular, cause she wants, she's using, she's using the story to help solve these issues. You know what I'm saying? Well, like see, that's, got, that's my question. My question is, what is this speculative work supposed to do for black people? Yeah, see, I think, um, that's a great question. I think that uh, it's a really interesting way to work out particular um, societal issues to kind of posit things. For instance, if you look at like one of the forefathers of critical race theory, Derek Bell, you know, he was a lawyer, right? Right. Uh, you might have heard this this story called um, called Space Traders. No, it's it's about a alien race that comes to the Earth. This is written in the eighties. And basically, Derek Bell was saying, "Okay, what if these aliens came to to the United States and said, hey, you know, you know, you have have your money. You have this huge deficit. You're killing yourselves with the pollution. You know, um, we will fix all of your problems if you give us all of the people in your country with a certain amount of melanin in their skin. Hmm. Don't ask us what we're going to do with them. You know, Um, we're going to take those people and we will solve all of your problems. Right. That's what Donald that's Trump the, is saying, ain't it? I know, right? That's the setup, but that's the setup for, uh, for, 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 for space traders. And so basically, you know, what Derek Bell was doing as a lawyer is he was using speculative fiction to come up with scenarios, you know, diegetic prototypes, if you will, that were actually useful to think about, um, you know, how the law functions in particular situations. Cause really, like, that's what 
that's what law is, right? It's a series of stories and precedents, right? Yeah. So Brother, I respect you tremendously, man. You ain't, you ain't not asking my question, brother. You're not answering my question. Well, no, what I'm saying is that is that you can use it to actually posit, like, to, to, to do, you know, problem solving, you know, as far as, like, what can you do in, in future spaces? You know? So I think early in this conversation, we talked about all, pro- all art being some type of propaganda. We, we can agree on that, right? Oh, yeah, very much so. And, and we can agree that black people in America, we could probably say in other places, but definitely in America is under siege. Is that we can oh, agree yeah, on that, I right? Think, I, like, I think that there is definitely... Um, some sieging going on, right? <laughs> so, uh, so, so now, I ask, so in that context, what is this? What is this? This work supposed to do for us? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I think that when we start looking at um, how, for instance, we're being uh, targeted by the police or like targeted in general throughout history, mm-hmm. a lot of that that comes from like the stories around us. You know, okay. those are speculations. You know, what I'm saying. So basically, what we're looking at is that you have a black body that could be read like a type of text. You know, that's what happened to Trayvon Martin, right? When he was in that space that his black body didn't belong in, he was quote unquote read as a thug or as a villain or as something else, right? Mm-hmm. So so we're made out of stories, man. You know what I'm saying? That, you know, people won't want to believe that, but that's what we are. We're made out of stories. Like people believe things about ourselves, the, the, the way that we, I mean, about each other, the way we look at each other mm-hmm. are, are these like systems of stories, you know? And yeah. that's being regulated through pr- primarily media, Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's been a lot of like studies that show that if people don't see themselves as, as heroes, they immediately have like, you know, um, low self-esteem, like that yeah. kind of thing. And you can see that in like studies like the 1950s uh, studies with the dolls, for instance. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, where uh, I forgot the name of the, the, the psychologist, but it's been repeated for many, you know, over many, uh, many times. And, um, you know, basically like the black dolls would have like, you know, the uh, the connotation of being negative or you're ugly or these types of things. So we're believing this about ourselves, right? Well, when see, the- here's here's the trick with that doll story, and I didn't find this out until recently. Mm-hmm. There was also another study. That study that we always hear about is by with a black girl or black kids that were brought up in integrated schools. Mm-hmm. There was the same study done with black kids in all black schools, what you call segregated schools, mm-hmm. and they chose the black dolls. They didn't have no problem. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes total sense, actually. Yeah. So yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like our speculative, you know, I feel like our speculative, uh, you know, work should push black people forward, should heal mm-hmm. the wounds yep. and not just retell, you know, the same, you know, stories of abuse and and being conquered and, and wounded with fancy lingo. I feel like it should be a, a lighthouse it should be a map it should be a horizon it yeah, yeah. should just keep us looking backwards if you're looking backwards it's, it's hard to know where you're going no i believe that too and there's certain aspects that um you know of, of, of what i think is jumping off in black sci-fi that does that you know right um but there's also this notion of how we don't deal with generational trauma you know that's mm-hmm. the other thing is that we are taught to like okay well let's shrug it off and let's go right. you know Stop but crying. Shake it off. Stop crying. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think that those particular types of trauma, you know, recently they said that, you know, those types of traumatic spaces that they're inherited through gen- genetically. Right. Mm-hmm. I believe that. So, yeah, that, no, that's they have done studies that basically state that when you're in a traumatic space, that it actually changes your body chemistry. Right. right. And that particular body chemistry can be genetically passed down, you know. Mm-hmm. So not only do we need to deal with those particular spaces, but so does America. You know, America's just been like, you know, in denial of its actual origins. And I think that's where a lot of this stuff is coming from, you know. And well, and, and to me, it's like I definitely, yeah, I, I make stories like Kid Code with my friends that actually celebrate, uh, you know, black uh, innovation and it's fun and stuff like that. Yeah. But I also delve into these dark spaces to unpack some of that trauma so we can, you know, you can't move forward. You know, it's like that. It's like that. Uh, like that. Like that. Erica Badu song. You know, bag lady. You know. Uh-huh. Yeah, bag lady is dragging all the bags behind her. She's trying to go forward, but haven't really dealt with the stuff that's affected her. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so both of those. I think both of those are true. A combination of both of those things. I think is mm-hmm. how we use storytelling. How we always have used art to deal with political resistance, to deal with our our, our feelings, to deal with like uh, you know uh, love and community. I mean, we, we've always used art in that way. You know. Mm-hmm. And of course, it gets co-opted, you know, by capitalism. But you of know, course. for most parts, I mean, we are 
creative people, you know, of the diaspora, and we actually use those tools uh, as effectively as different types of discourse, right? So mm-hmm. true, yeah, that's true. the reason. That's why that's why griots are so important, right? You know, they they would basically carry the message, you know, from place to place, but were also warrior poets too, right? So that's also part of it. So I think that that tradition of like the warrior poet, the griot, all these different types of things that actually I think come out of the Black Arts Movement and other, you know, subsequent artistic movements are popping up again in this black speculative art, you know, whether it be comics, poetry, you know, fine art, music, you know, we are dealing with those particular issues, you know. True that. Yeah. Well, that's, 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 that's your class. You're, you're the griot class. You're that warrior poet class. Uh, Mr. John Jennings, is there anything I forgot to ask you, man, as we wrap up? Let me see. Uh, so we talked about Blue Hand Mojo a little bit, right? Or did we? You know. Oh snap! Okay, so let me let me let me let me intro. Let me bring it in for. Let me bring it in. <laughs> so this is this is a period piece. The way I read it, like nineteen twenties yeah. kind of prohibitionary kind That's of thing. Uh, you know, brothers in the you know, I guess mostly black town or whatever. The the recession is hard. And, uh, and he lives with his girlfriend. He's just trying to, you know, make ends meet. And the, one of the ways that he, uh, you know, survives is by, you know, doing little jobs and things of that sort. And he has this, I don't want to give too much away, but let's just say he has a magical kind of, uh, talent that mm-hmm. he employs in some of the, in some of the work that he, just imagine, uh, you guys remember that? Remember it's Spencer for Hire, and there was a spinoff called The Man Named Hawk. Man Named Hawk, yeah. Yeah, I remember exactly. that? Yeah. And yeah. so just imagine that in the 1920s, you know what I mean, kind of thing. Except, like yeah. except yeah. Hawk, except Hawk wasn't, you know, this kind of like military spy type dude. Hawk was a hustler, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, uh, and he had this little magical thing. Now, of course, since John Jennings, and, 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 uh, I think, and is the, uh, what's the other brother's name? I'm sorry, man. So Stacy? Yes, yeah, Stacy. So Stacy, both of you guys worked on this, right? No, uh, we, we, me, uh, Stacy and Damian Duffy worked on Kid Code together, which is pub- published by the same publisher, uh, Bill Campbell's, uh, company. Uh, yeah, Rosarium. Uh huh. Yeah. But no, uh, 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 what you call it? Blue Hand Mojo is totally me. That's gotcha. I mean. Okay. Good. So, so with this, with this one, um, the art, it, it reminds me of, um, linoleum cuts mm-hmm. a little bit, very, you know what I mean? The, yeah, the, very the, much so. Yeah, it kind of has that nice kind of artsy kind of vibration. Of course, you know the colors pop or whatever, and so it's just it's just it's something that's kind of it's like I missed my stop because I'm reading this book kind of deal. It's a very immersive kind of thing. Mm. Um, the language is authentic. That's something I really appreciated. I just, I mean, it wasn't a leap for me to imagine. Okay, this is the way they talk. And, you know, it's not a long book, but you see the relationship between the guy and this woman and the guy and this, uh, you could say, his uh, customer that gives him a job and so forth. Yeah. And this yeah. little kid kind of runs up. It reminds me of the little boy uh, with the buttons and Sherlock Holmes that kind of announces there's somebody at the door. Oh, yeah. The uh, the, the blue blazer. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So it's yeah. a lot in the book. This book has <laughs> layers. Like That's that. why I like this stuff. You know what I mean? It's like it's like all the stuff. It's just it's just you can. It's so many layers to it. And that's what I think about it. What's what's your take? Oh man, thank you so much for that. No, I, um, I'm really, it's, it's a, that, that's one of my pet projects. So, you know, the main character is actually from Mississippi originally, okay. and which you probably remember, like he's, you know, he loses his family in racialized mm-hmm. violence, right? And yep. he, like a lot of people who've been, uh, persecuted in the South moves to Chicago to escape that, you know? There was a whole and, period of migrations yeah. back then, yep. Yeah, it's a, it's a whole, like, uh, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the great migration narrative is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it and happened so it again Atlanta, in the so. 50s and it happened again in the 90s. Everybody went to Atlanta. <laughs> That's right. I know, right? And now people are moving back down south. Um, yeah, so the uh, the main character, his name is Frank Johnson, who, and he's the fictitious cousin of Robert Johnson, the, the famous blues man. Right. right. So I just made him up. You know, he's not a real character, but he references Robert Johnson as his cousin, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, um, you know, if you remember the the, the, uh, the the story around Robert Johnson is that supposedly he sold his soul to the quote unquote devil to become a great blues man, right? So wow, I didn't hear that. I just thought that uh, I didn't hear that. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's the story. Is that he uh, became a virtuos a virtuoso blues man because he so he sells his soul, you know, to the devil at the crossroads. So wow. uh, what ends up happening is uh, this particular character 
who's bent on revenge. He gets really drunk on some moonshine, goes down to the crossroads and makes a deal mm-hmm. for power to exact revenge. And then what ends up happening is uh, eventually he he kind of like uh, what do you call it? he uh, he basically barters down his uh, his sentence so to speak, and he mm-hmm. ends up instead of having to owe his whole soul, he actually only has half of his soul that uh, the devil has. So that's why he's called Half Dead Johnson because he he basically now works for the devil. Um, the, Part, and he, wor- he works for the devil part time. <laughs> he does. He works for the devil part time. Exactly. <laughs> so what's happening is like you know if you you know you read your Bible, the devil was supposed to be put into a, a pit for eternity at the end of all day, all time, right? Mm-hmm. And also you know you know according to uh, <laughs> I want to say research, but you know <laughs> stories. Um, that the devil, you know, Lucifer was in charge of the music in heaven, right? So he has a he has an ear for music, and I thought it was very interesting that the blues, which which is actually a huge part of the story, is called the, it used to be called the devil's music, which I thought was really interesting. Interesting, um, yeah. And so you know, uh, I just put all that stuff together, and so the devil has basically got this guy running around collecting souls because these particular souls resonate in a particular tone. He's trying to compose a song with these souls, right? Wow. <laughs> so that's the, that's, that's dope. That's, that's the background, but um, you know, so 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 it's a series. It's, it's be a series of graphic novellas uh, that detail this very long lived, very interesting character named Frank Johnson and his exploits and how he's trying to. Um, you know, save as many people as possible while he's trying to like not go to hell. You know, the mm-hmm. other thing that's really interesting is that you know he gets his hand is blue. It, it, it's, it's literally a blue hand. You know, mm-hmm. which is inspired by the the Gullah people when they used to create the indigo. They used to have the blue hands because they work on indigo. Oh and, wow! Okay. Yeah, so that's where I get the idea from. And so um, what happens is he reaches into this space called the Noir. The Noir is a living female like goddess or a particular space. And I think, you you know, he references it. And when he reached, that's where all black imagination comes from. It's called the noir, you know? And that was a very beautiful panel, by the way. I still remember that. That was gorgeous. Oh, thank you. It was, it was based off of this artist's work. Uh, Her name is, she's an Italian uh, artist named Maimona Goresi. And uh, I just love the way that she photographs black people. It's pretty amazing. Anyway. um, So, so what happens is if he uses too much of his power, then that, the, the the color on his arm starts creeping up his arm, mm-hmm. so he has so his lover has to make this tonic for him to stop him from turning into a story. Wow! So so this is a metaphor for the stereotype, right? Where like remember I was telling you about like you know a stereotype is just basically something that someone said about us and it's stuck. You know what sure, I'm saying? Sure. So so a lot of times we're trying to escape that stereotype, that story mm-hmm. that has been projected upon us, which. Oftentimes, as you can see recently, it could be very dangerous, you know what I'm saying, for us. Right. Um, so anyway, uh, I, so that's what he, so that's the, the gist of the story. And, um, okay. you know, this particular book that comes out and I think we're dropping it in January as well. Fantastic. Uh, um, is the rest of the story that you read. It's like, the, it's, so it's a 90 page uh, graphic novel. Wow. Yeah, so it's the rest yeah. of it. So that's why it took so long. And also, you know, we were working Okay, on- I forgive you for taking so long for number yeah, two. Since you're going to give us 90 pages. Give you a lot of story, you know what I'm saying? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. So so right now we can get uh, a Kid Code and we can get uh, a Blue Hand pre- Mojo on Pete you can Game. Pre-order it. You, can, you can get the first uh, 30 pages of it, like... Um, through Comixology and other places uh, like, you know, I think you get on Amazon too, but the rest of it is going to be out pretty soon as a graphic novel. And, um, you know, Kid Code is on uh, Indie Planet. It's on Comixology. You can get it directly through uh, Rosarium. Mm-hmm. The Kindred book you can pre-order uh, on Amazon and on the Abrams comic book site. And also too, the man Stacy worked on an illustrated um, prison industrial complex book too, from uh, the four beginners people. You ever seen those books? Um, psychology for beginners or like science for beginners sure or, yeah 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 so we did one on the prison industrial complex with that company wow yeah it's out you can get it yep so when do you sleep brother i sleep well man. <laughs> so you got so much going on you might well, be working yeah, on an hour hour and a half tops i don't know well the thing is is that you know i um i believe like uh you know we're here for a purpose so i try to like be as diligent as possible the other thing is i work on a lot of stuff like pieces of things gotcha. you know like, so, for instance, I've been working on Blue Hand Mojo for a while, you know, just thinking about it, you know. Right. And, um, you know, you, you when people ask me about that, I always say, like, you know, how do you eat a whale, right? Mm-hmm. You eat it a little bit at a time. You know, people people want instant success. And I think what you do is that, you know, if you're really serious about something and you're diligent at it and you keep working at it, you know, like, 
this story that we're working on right now, I'm working on with uh, a bunch of artists and, and my friend Ayuse Jemai Everett, who's another black science fiction writer out of the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. We work on this project called Box of Bones that is a 10 part you know, horror story, but it deals with like some of the things we're talking about, like what, where does black rage go when, mm-hmm. when it goes unchecked, that kind of thing. Wow. So, so I would actually, so you, you've seen Hellraiser, right? Of course. Okay. So imagine like Afrocentric Hellraiser, right? <laughs> what? <laughs> but, but instead of a door to hell, it's a box of black rage. Huh. That's deep. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. so yeah, that's and it's all over the diaspora. So that's the story that we're working on. We've been working on it for three years, you know, off wow. and on. But, you know, I got you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you just kind of like you know, every, everything in this time, you know. Solid, right on, uh, John Jennings. Man, it's been a pleasure talking to you, brother. Thank you for sharing your uh, your wisdom, your experience, and your knowledge with my audience, man. Um, if they want to follow you on the social media, how do they do that? Um, let's see. I'm on Twitter uh, quite a bit, I guess, these days. So I'm at J.I. Jennings. You know, that is my uh, my Twitter handle, J.I. Jennings on Twitter. Yo, family, that's another episode of Jonathan Soul in the Bag. Hope y'all dug it. And I hope y'all took note of the contact info at the end of the interview. Go ahead, reach out. Go ahead and support those folks. Hey, listen, by the way, family, speaking of support, you can support your friendly neighborhood podcaster by going over to jonathansoul.com and picking up my ebook, Malcolm Mars. Malcolm like the prophet, Mars like the planet. It's an ebook I wrote. Three families go to Mars to escape the violence and racism of Earth. Black people in space always uh, intrigue me, and that's what you get. You get the politics, the aliens, the family dynamic, the high technology, the whole nine. And uh, I think they're vegetarians or something of that sort. But yeah, family, go ahead and check them out. Uh, also, uh, you can follow me on uh, social media, J-O-H-N-A-T-J-N-S-A-U-L on Blackspot, on Tumblr, and on Twitter. And of course, you can subscribe to this show on iTunes. And uh, if you go to JonathanSoul.com, there's a little RSS feed that you can link up with. Listen, I love you guys. Hope all your dreams come true. And if they're not, just work a little bit smarter.